Gresham College presents Shakespeare's Astronomy by Professor Michael Rowan Robinson. So um, it's wonderful to be here um, celebrating Shakespeare. Um, And it's great to see so many friends in the audience. Um, I'm delighted to have my old friend, distinguished actor Ian Barrett here to read the Shakespeare quotes. Um, Ian uh, has appeared recently... um, as Prospero in The Tempest at Bristol and also Polonius, as Polonius in Hamlet there. And you may also have seen him in Wolf Hall, uh, amongst many other things. Um, he and I last performed Shakespeare together over 50 years ago <laughs> in, a, in a tour of Romeo and Juliet to Germany. Um, so uh, there are two themes to this lecture. Um, the first theme is Shakespeare's knowledge of the night sky um, and how important it was to him in his his plays. Um, The second theme is whether Shakespeare shows us that he knew about the new world system of Copernicus. Um, People have discussed Shakespeare's astronomy for a very long time. Um, And uh, so there's a quote I just want to read to you from 1898 by... Orion Harmon, rather lofty quote, Shakespeare's allusions to the planets are very often made astrologically. In but few instances are they made from a purely astronomical point of view. Well, uh, in the last 10 years, um, there's been an increased interest in Shakespeare and astronomy. I got interested about 10 years ago and wrote a piece about it about eight years ago. And that has led on to other things, including tonight's event. So um, in the time of Shakespeare, um, of William Shakespeare, England was a hotbed of Copernicanism. Nicholas Copernicus had set out to reform Ptolemy's earth-centered model of the solar system, but in the end he came up with a completely new picture with the earth spinning on its axis once a day and orbiting the sun once a year. This marked the beginning of the end for the whole Aristotelian worldview with the Earth at the centre of the universe. Copernicus published his results on his deathbed in 1543 in De Revolutionibus, on the revolution of the celestial sphere. So that's just 20 years or so before Shakespeare was born. Um, This book came under fire from Catholic theologians soon after its publication and found few supporters among continental mathematicians and philosophers, though many were willing to use the planetary tables based on the new model, which were decidedly superior to Ptolemy's. Um, De Revolutionibus was to end up on the index of banned books in 1616. Um, Luther also despised Copernicus and all that he represented, so the reception was no better in the continental Protestant world. The only place where it was safe to talk about Copernicus's ideas was England. And it was in the circle of the Elizabethan mathematician and magus John Dee, shown down below, um, that discussion of Copernicus's ideas flourished. John Dee is a, is a perplexing figure. Um, he was tutor and advisor to Queen Elizabeth and amassed one of the largest libraries in Europe. Um, In 1570, he published a mathematical preface to Euclid, 
which gives a survey of mathematics and its applications, and he trained a number of the navigators of his day. He was interested in astronomy, but also in astrology, alchemy, and the, o- the occult. It's been suggested that he was a model for Shakespeare's Prospero. Um, more of that later, perhaps. It was, in, it was in, in England and through Dee's circle that the Italian maverick friar Giordano Bruno encountered the Copernican revolution and incorporated it into his radical philosophy with uh, disastrous results for him personally. He was, he was burnt at the stake in Rome in 1600. As we will see, there is a direct link between Shakespeare and leading Copernicans. So was Shakespeare influenced by this new world view. Um, well, there was another pro-Copernican group centred on the Earl of Northumberland and the Earl of Southampton. And this included uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, Sir Philip Sidney, the scientist Thomas Harriot, and John Florio. They were known as the School of Night because of their atheistic tendencies. Um, Shakespeare had links to the Earl of Southampton, to whom the Rape of Lucrece and Venus and Adonis were dedicated, and to John Florio, who was Southampton's secretary. It's been suggested that Shakespeare may have been satirising the School of Night in Love's Labour's Lost. Writers linked to both Dee and Northumberland include Spencer, Sidney, Marlowe and Dunn. Um, Some of those Shakespeare certainly knew. Right, so just to give some examples of Shakespeare's astronomical references... um, (coughs) The plays are Shakespeare rich in astronomical reference, and of course that's somewhat in the nature of Shakespeare because um, they're also rich in allusions to falconry, agriculture, medicine, or almost any other aspect of Elizabethan life. But I, I, I maintain that Shakespeare's astronomy is quite deeply interesting. So if you look in um, the Penguin Dictionary of Quotations, there are 99 references to stars, star or stars, and of these, 12 are from Shakespeare. And the next most prolific writers at five each are Milton, Byron, Wordsworth and Shelley, and with Keats on four and Coleridge and Tennyson on three each. So Shakespeare's the writer that is most quoted with references to the stars. And the Shakespeare Concordance um, shows an astonishing 128 references to stars or stars. Now, at first sight, the Shakespeare quotations are just simple metaphors, one particular bright star, cut him out in little stars, you chase stars, two stars keep not their motion in one sphere, or their astrological references, it is the stars, the stars above us, there was a star danced, and the yoke of the inauspicious stars. Similarly, astrological is another famous quotation from Julius Caesar, when beggars die, there are no comets seen, the heavens themselves blaze forth the death of princes. But this is more interesting because it connects to a definite phenomenon of the night sky, comets. And a more lurid version appears in Act 1, Scene 1 of Hamlet, when Horatio says, A little ere the mightiest Julius fell, the graves stood tenantless, and the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets, as stars with trains of fire and dews of blood, disasters in the sun, so then in, in Henry IV, part one, the Duke of Bedford says, Comets, importing change of time and states, brandish your crystal tresses in the sky. And, and in King John, the, the Louis the Dauphin says, 
But this effusion of such manly drops startles mine eyes, and makes me more amazed than had I seen the vaulty top of heaven figured quite o'er with burning meteors. Shakespeare even seems to know about meteorites. In Richard II, Salisbury says, I see thy glory like a shooting star, fall to the base earth from the firmament. And, and this is where Shakespeare shows the superiority of his observation and imagination um, over these, those later writers who like the stars. He knows about comets, meteor showers, the constellations, and the motions of the sky. The wind-shake surge, with high and monstrous mane, seem to cast water on the burning bear and quench the guards of the ever-fixed pole. So the violence of the storm encountered by Othello on his way to Cyprus is indicated by the fact that the great bear, or plough, or wain, which never goes below the horizon from UK latitudes, seems to disappear below the waves. Um, amusingly, it's not such a good metaphor at the latitude of Cyprus, which is where Othello's supposed to be. Hey-ho! I be not four, by the day I'll be hanged! Charles's wain is over the new chimney, and yet our horse not packed. So the porters in the inn yard in Henry IV, part one, they realise they are running late from the position of the wain or plough in the sky. And Julius Caesar, Brutus, however, fails to tell the time this way. I cannot, by the progress of the stars, give guess how near today. There's a lovely couplet in Two Noble Kinsmen, a joint work by Shakespeare and John Fletcher. The jailer's daughter says, I'm very cold. And all the stars are out too, the little stars and all, that look like eaglets. The, the implication of the exceptionally cold night, that the sky is especially clear, so much fainter stars can be seen. So Shakespeare seems to have a country boy's knowledge of the sky and its phenomena. Could this have come from his mother, Mary Arden, who lived and presumably worked on a farm until her marriage to John Shakespeare in 1557? Interestingly, the last lines of her epitaph in Holy Trinity Church, Stratford, possibly written by her daughter Susanna, translate as, Come quickly, Christ, that my mother, though shut in the tomb, may rise again and seek the stars. So is Shakespeare's sister telling us that their mother loved to look at the stars? I think that is a hint there that, that uh, his mother was interested in the night sky and she might have been the one that got Shakespeare interested in it. So, um, in Timon of Athens, Shakespeare shows that he is aware that the moon shines by reflected light. The moon's an arrant thief, and her pale fire she snatches from the sun. And in, in Macbeth, he knows that one half of the earth is illuminated by the sun at a time. Now o'er the one-half world, nature seems dead. And wicked dreams abuse the curtain sleep. Uh, in Henry the Fourth, Part One, Prince Hal uh, knows that the moon controls the tides. For the fortune of us that are the moon's men doth ebb and flow like the sea, being governed as the sea is by the moon. Julius, C Julius Caesar says, "I am constant as the northern star." So Shakespeare knew the night sky rotates around Polaris the northern star, though Caesar himself is unlikely to have said this because in his time, due to the procession of the equinoxes, the pole was not particularly near Polaris. Um, Shakespeare again refers to the pole star in sonnet 116. 
Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Shakespeare knows that mariners can use the elevation of the pole star to estimate their latitude. Um, The conspirators in Julius Caesar show that they're aware that the direction of sunrise varies with the season. Here lies the east. Doth not the day break here? No. Oh, pardon, sir, it doth. And yon grey lines that fret the clouds are messengers of day. You shall confess that you are both deceived. Here, as I point my sword, the sun arises, which is a great way growing on the south, weighing the youthful season of the year. Some two months hence, Heinz higher up towards the north, he first presents his fire, and the high east stands as the capital directly here. In Midsummer Night's Dream, the mechanicals consult an almanac to determine whether there will be a moon on the night of their impending performance. Doth the moon shine the night we play our play? A calendar, a calendar. Look at the almanac, find out moonshine, find out moonshine. Yes, it doth shine that night. <laughs> and uh, Richard III checks a calendar um, for the time of sunrise, just before the Battle of Bosworth, near the end of the play. Tell the clock there. Give me a calendar. Who saw the sun today? Not I, my lord. Then he disdains to shine. For by the book he should have braved the east an hour ago. A black day will it be for somebody. And, of course, the play's opening lines... Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. Contains this pun on son, son of York, S-O-N, and son of summer, S-U-N. So Richard foresees his doom in the darkened sun and unconsciously refers back to his gleeful opening words. Other intriguing or resonant astronomical quotes are Claudius's remark to Hamlet. That is most retrograde to our desires, apparently referring to the occasional retrograde or backwards motion of the planets on the sky. Now, retrograde can have an ordinary meaning of contrary, but in All's Well That Ends Well, Shakespeare uses retrograde explicitly in the context of the motion of Mars. Another technical astronomy term comes in Prospero's. And by my prescience, I find my zenith doth depend upon a most auspicious star. It was a picture of Ian as Prospero. <laughs> um, so the zenith is the, is the highest point in the sky reached by a star during its nightly rotation. Um, a highly perplexing speech occurs in, in King John. My lord, they say five moons were seen tonight. Four fixed and the fifth did whirl about the other four in wondrous motion. This was written in 1596, well before Galileo's announcement of the four moons of Jupiter, so it seems to be just fantastical. But it could just possibly be an allusion to the upheaval in the planetary system being talked about by some of Shakespeare's friends. On the other hand, in Cymbeline, written in 1610, the year of Galileo's announcement of the moons of Jupiter, 
the four moons of Jupiter. Shakespeare has four ghosts dance around the sleeping posthumous um, in, in, the fifth, in the last act until they are dispersed by Jupiter. Some have taken this as an allusion to, to Galileo's discovery of the four moons of Jupiter. The context does not really support this, but there is another curious fact about Cymbeline. There are 12 references to Jupiter in Cymbeline, far more than any other Shakespeare play. The references are to the Roman god Jupiter, not to the planet. So you might say this is natural in a Roman play. Yet there are no references to Jupiter in Julius Caesar, and only three in Antony and Cleopatra. Was Jupiter on Shakespeare's mind as he wrote Cymbeline, because he had heard or read about Galileo? Milton, writing 70 years later, and having actually met Galileo in his youth, explicitly mentions Galileo in Paradise Lost. As when by night the glass of Galileo less assured observes imagined lands and regions in the moon. The Shakespeare concordance shows over 500 references. So what it is, is it's um, some of the Shakespeare plays, not the whole lot. And it's the number of references to sun in the first column, star or stars in the second, moon, and the total, uh, in order of the total. So the most astronomical plays from that point of view just are Midsummer Night's Dream, Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Love's Labour's Lost, and other plays high up there, uh, Antony and Cleopatra, King Lear. Um, I've also put the date, the believed date, when these plays were written. And in fact, it, it's all through his career that he's using these astronomical references. Um, now, the, the flavour of the moment is to discuss who was Shakespeare's collaborator on some of these plays. And so in the last column, I've put down some of the people that are, that some of the other writers who are believed to have collaborated and written part of the, the, the Shakespeare plays that we have today. And it just, it just so happens that uh, these collaborative plays actually are f- quite far down the list. So the, most, the, most, the, big, the highest number of, sh- of astro- astronomy quotes are in the plays Shakespeare wrote on his own. So it is Shakespeare himself, not one of his collaborators, who put in all these references to the stars. Um, one could compare the number of um, references to some in the stars of Shakespeare to others of his contemporaries. So Marlowe had 57 references to some in the stars, Ben Jonson 42. So really his contemporaries were not as interested as he was in the night sky. Now, although Shakespeare loved astronomy, he was not very flattering about astronomers. So uh, in um, Byron in Love's Labour's Lost says... Study is like the heaven's glorious sun that will not be deep-searched with saucy looks. Small have continual plodders ever won save base authority from others' books. These earthly godfathers of heaven's lights that give a name to every fixed star have no more profit of their shining nights than those that walk and what not where they are. Too much to know is to know naught but fame. And every godfather can give a name. To which, to which the king wittily replies, How well he's read to reason against reading. Now, obviously, there is always a strong astrological content in the plays. Shakespeare, and Shakespeare makes 
almost no distinction between astronomy and astrology. In Cymbeline, Imogen says, O learned indeed were that astronomer that knew the stars as I his characters. He'd lay the future open. And in Sonnet 14, Not from the stars do I my judgment pluck, and yet methinks I have astronomy. But not to tell of good or evil luck, of plagues, of dearths, or seasons' quality. So in both these quotes, uh, when, when Shakespeare says astronomy, he actually means astrology. Um, ben Johnson is even more scathing about astronomers. Tut! These starmonger knaves, who would trust him? One says dark and rainy when tis as clear as crystal. Another says tempestuous blasts and storms and twas as calm as a milk bowl. Here be sweet rascals for a man to credit his old fortunes with. You sky-scaring coxcombs, you, you fat brains, out upon you. You're good for nothing but to sweat nightcaps and make rug gowns, dear. You learned men and have not a legion of devils, the votre service, the votre service. By heaven, I think I shall die a better scholar than they. <laughs> the, um, the astronomical universe of Shakespeare is... is naturally enough, almost always, a strictly Aristotelian one. Doubt that the stars are fire. Doubt that the sun doth move. Doubt truth to be a liar. But never doubt I love. So this letter from Hamlet to Ophelia assumes his contemporaries all know that the stars are made of fire and the sun moves around the earth. And so he he's obviously must... He, he can assure... Um, therefore it's obvious that he does love Ophelia. Any deviation from the motion of the spheres must be associated with magic. And certain stars shot madly from their spheres to hear the sea maid sing. So I've, I've mentioned um, Shakespeare's references to the stars controlling our fates, and these seem very like the conventional astrological view of the period, but there's one very dramatic counter to this in Lear. This is the excellent foppery of the world. We make guilty of our disasters the sun, the moon and the stars. As if we were villains by necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves and treacherers by spherical predominance, drunkards, liars and adulterers by enforced obedience of planetary influence. I should have been that I am had the maidenliest star in the firmament twinkled on my bastardising. This is an amazing assault on the astrological fatalism that we hear from the mouths of so many of Shakespeare's characters. Of course, it comes from the mouth of the villain of the play Edmund, so it does not necessarily represent Shakespeare's own sceptical view. Earlier in the scene, the Earl of Gloucester has piously remarked, These late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. Though the wisdom of nature can reason it thus and thus, Yet nature finds itself scourged by the sequent effects. Edmund ridicules the idea that eclipses portend anything. Gloucester knows very well that there is a natural explanation for eclipses, says it here, but still thinks they must mean something. Um, Othello invokes eclipses to express his anguish. Oh, insupportable. Oh, heavy hour. Methinks it should be now a huge eclipse of sun and moon, and that the affrighted globe should yawn at alteration. So th this is a bit of an astronomical blunder, because you can't actually eclipse the sun and moon at the same time. 
but they can be eclipsed two weeks apart, and this happened in 1598, and less impressively in 1605 when Lear was being written. Um, in Antony and Cleopatra, um, Antony uses an eclipse metaphor to express his sense of impending doom. Alack, our terrene moon is now eclipsed, and it portends alone the fall of Antony. And Cleopatra also uses an, an astronomical metaphor as she resolves to die. Now from head to foot, I am marble constant. Now the fleeting moon, no planet is of mine. Time and again, Shakespeare calls on astronomical phenomena to convey the emotional state of his characters. One of the most famous is Juliet, Juliet in the balcony scene. Oh, swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon, that monthly changes in her circled orb, lest that thy love prove likewise variable. This reliance on astronomical metaphor um, uh, at key moments is surely unique to Shakespeare. So a more measured critique of astrological, astrological fortune-telling comes from Pandolf in King John. No natural exhalation in the sky, no scope of nature, no distempered day, no common wind, no customed event, but they will pluck away his natural cause and call them meteors, prodigies and signs, abortives, presages, and tongues of heaven, plainly denouncing vengeance upon John. And in all's well that ends well, Helen says, Our remedies oft in ourselves do lie, which we ascribe to heaven. The fated sky gives us free scope, only doth backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. And of course Cassius says to Brutus in Julius Caesar, The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. So, apart from these critical asides, Shakespeare seems at first sight unaware of the new astronomy that had burst into European consciousness with Copernicus in 1543. And why should he? He was not a university man. Even Christopher Marlowe, who was Shakespeare's exact contemporary, um, has Mephistopheles explain the Ptolemaic system when Faustus asks him about the structure of the heavens. Um, writing 200 years later, the Romantic poets, incidentally, show little evidence of ever having much looked at the night sky um, and write about the stars in rather general terms. Of course, they inhabit a very different post-Aristotelian universe. In Byron's great poem, Darkness, we get a real feel of the evolution of stars and of the universe. Um, Tennyson and Hardy are the two writers who, after Shakespeare, demonstrate a real love and deep knowledge of the night sky. Of his predecessors, Dante and Chaucer both used astronomy extensively in their work. In fact, Dante wrote a treatise on cosmology, and Chaucer wrote a book about the astrolobe. The reason I comment on Shakespeare's seeming lack of awareness of the new astronomy is that he does seem to have a link to the English Copernicans, and it would be surprising if he had not heard their ideas. The, the evidence for this link is also a key piece of evidence that the actor William Shakespeare of Stratford is truly the author of the plays of Shakespeare. It seems hard to doubt this when we read the eulogy of Ben Jonson, but people do persist in doubting that Will S. could have written these great plays. The evidence is in the name of those two treacherous friends of Hamlet, 
Rosencrantz and Gilderstein. These are not random names, but are in fact the names of two of the ancestors of the great Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe, who was a contemporary of Shakespeare. Tycho was in correspondence with the leading English Copernicans, and in 1590 he wrote to Thomas Savile in closing his 1588 book describing his hybrid model of the solar system in which the planets orbit the sun, but the sun orbits a stationary earth. Um, along with four copies of his portrait shown here, which is framed by a stone arch with heraldic shields bearing the names of his ancestors. And um, so, I'm not sure if I can find it, but anyway, so there's, there's Sophie Gildenstein and Eric Rosencrantz are amongst the, the names around this shield. Um, Tycho specifically asked Savile to remember him to John Dee and Thomas Diggies, who I've mentioned before. The astronomer Thomas Diggies... Uh, was a member of John Dee's circle, and um, John Dee became his guardian when his father died. And in um, 1576, Thomas Diggis wrote a pamphlet, a perfect description of the celestial orbs, in which he took the Copernican system to its logical conclusion and asserted that the stars ex extend to infinity. And this picture down here is from that treaties and it shows the solar system with the sun at the centre and the new Copernican system, the moon going round the earth and then the stars just spreading out to infinity. So this is a um, natural extension of the Copernican system but very different from the world of Aristotle. Um, Thomas's father Leonard was a well-known mathematician and has been credited with the invention of the telescope prior to Galileo. Thomas published new editions of his father's mathematical and scientific works and added material of his own. He was also an MP from 1572 to 1586 and a friend of the poet Sir Philip Sidney. One copy of Tycho's portrait ended up um, in the possession of Thomas Diggis's younger son, Leonard. Now, the Diggis and Shakespeare families were connected. Leonard Diggis, Jr., praised Shakespeare in a rather touching poem in the Folio edition of 1623. <coughs> After Thomas Diggis' death, his widow Anne married Thomas Russell, whom Shakespeare appointed overseer of his will. It seems likely that Shakespeare got the names for these two characters in his Danish play from Thomas Diggis. They are, in fact, among the few um, characters in the play with Danish-sounding names. So this link would make the Stratford actor Will Shakespeare definitively the author of Hamlet. However, there is another route for Shakespeare to have encountered these names. In 1592, two members of a Danish diplomatic mission to London were Frederick Rosencrantz and Knud Gildenstein, two cousins of Tycho's, <coughs> and perhaps Shakespeare came across the names then. Um, the American academic Peter Usher wants to take this connection a lot further. And he gives an allegorical interpretation of Hamlet in which Claudius represents the Aristotelian earth-centred worldview encapsulated by Claudius Ptolemy. No, Claudius Ptolemy. Um, Rosencrantz and Gilderstein represent Tycho's hybrid model in which the planets revolve around the sun and the sun revolves around the earth. And Hamlet himself represents the new universe of Copernicus and Thomas Diggis. Thus, Hamlet has to kill off the competing but outdated worldviews. It doesn't seem um, 
totally brilliant outcome for an allegory when um, Hamlet, the Copernican system, dies very shortly after Claudius. Um, Peter Asher also suggests that The Tempest is based on an account of a voyage to Norway, Norway by James I, which ran into bad weather and included a visit to Tycho Brahe in his island observatory, i.e. we have to identify Tycho with Prospero. Um, but the problem is that there's little reference to the stars in The Tempest. We, we've heard one of them, but there, there are very few other references to astronomy. The Tempest is Shakespeare's farewell to the theatre, and it seems more plausible to identify Prospero as Shakespeare himself. To see Hamlet as an allegory about world systems seems to be missing the point about what is so great about the character of Hamlet and the extraordinary psychological depth of his four great soliloquies. But there are a couple of lines of Hamlet which give pause for thought. So on the very first page, Bernardo says, Last night of all, when yon same star that's westward from the pole hath made his course to illume that part of heaven where now it burns. So once again, Shakespeare showing that he's familiar with the rotation of the night sky. But which star is Bernardo talking about? Prominent constellations near the pole are the plough, which Shakespeare talks about elsewhere as the bear or the wain, and Cassiopeia. But these do not have any star that stands out. Several of the characters complain about how cold it is, so we're talking about a time around midnight during the winter. This would mean that Cassiopeia lies westward of the pole. Now, so there in the red circle is Cassiopeia, the W of Cassiopeia. Um, now, Tycho had discovered and studied a very bright new star, a supernova in Cassiopeia in 1572. And that's shown up on the left there. The red star is the position of this new star that appeared. John Dee and Thomas Diggies also wrote about this new star. And Diggies, like Tycho, demonstrated that it lay beyond the zone of the planets so was in conflict with Aristotle's assertion that nothing could change in the celestial sphere. This new star would for a few weeks have been very obvious above the well-known W of Cassiopeia. Could Bernardo have been referring to Tycho's star? The only problem is that Shakespeare was only eight years old in 1572. Could someone, perhaps his mother, have pointed out Tycho's astonishing new star to him and did this stick in his mind, or did Thomas Diggers talk about it to Shakespeare? when he was thinking about Hamlet. Rhetorical question, unfortunately. Um, by the way, there's also a re reference to a new star in Ben Jonson's Volpone, written in 1605. It comes in a long list of prodigies, a long comic list of prodigies. Now, heaven, what prodigies be these? The fires at Bedick and the new star. These things concurring strange and full of omen. Saw you those meteors? I did, sir. Fearful. Pray, you, sir, confirm me. Were there three porpoises seen above the bridge as they give out? Six. And a sturgeon, sir. So this new, this new star must presumably be Kepler's supernova of 1604. The, the second quotation which suggests the influence of Thomas Diggies is, is Hamlet's famous remark. I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space. To us, this sounds like natural, if dramatic, imagery. But the idea of infinite space, introduced by Thomas Diggers in 1576, was extremely novel and revolutionary. 
to times which were still drenched in centuries of Aristotle's finite universe. Infinite space would have been a mind-blowing idea in the late 16th and early 17th century. Here, perhaps, we do have a reference to the new astronomy of Copernicus and Digges. Is it a coincidence that Hamlet is a student at Wittenberg, where George Reticus, who helped Copernicus finish and publish his book, and Erasmus Reinhardt, who published the first Copernican planetary tables, both lectured? Another remarkably modern-sounding line is the chorus's prologue to the fourth act of Henry V. Now entertain conjecture of a time when creeping murmur and the pouring dark fills the wide vessel of the universe. So again, seem to be referring to the, the infinite universe of Thomas Digges. So there's a strong hint of Copernicanism in Ulysses' famous speech on degree in Troilus and Cressida. The heavens themselves, the planets and this centre, observe degree, priority and place. Insist your course, proportion, season, form, office and custom in all line of order. And therefore is the glorious planet Sol in noble eminence enthroned and sphered amidst the other, whose medicinable eye corrects the ill aspects of planets evil, and posts, like the commandment of a king, sans check to good and bad. So although he's describing an Aristotelian order of the heavens, the sun seems to be enthroned in the centre and controlling the planets. Now, I've admitted that um, Edmund's assault on astrology in Lear does not come from a reliable witness. But perhaps we have to look again at Hamlet's letter to Ophelia. He writes, Doubt that the sun doth move, meaning, you can't doubt that, therefore you can't doubt my love. However, as Polonius and Claudius come to realise, and Hamlet makes pretty clear to Ophelia in the audience, he does not love Ophelia. Is Shakespeare saying to us that perhaps we do have to question whether it is the sun that moves? That would be amazing, but it would only make sense if Shakespeare was confident his audience would know what he was talking about. How far would Copernicanism have spread from the circles of enthusiasts like John Dee and the Earl of Northumberland? Uh, when Hamlet jumps into um, Ophelia's grave, he says, What is he whose grief bears such an emphasis? Whose praise of sorrow, whose phrase of sorrow conjures the wandering stars and make them stand like wonder-wounded hearers? This is I, Hamlet the Dane. So again suggesting that the new world order in which it is not the sun and stars that move is on his mind. To Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, he has earlier said, and indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why it appears no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. So, surely... Part of Hamlet's angst is about the destruction of the old world order. He's got plenty else, uh, else also to be, um, to, to be depressed about, but it seems that that is on his mind all the time. Now, earlier, after meeting the ghost of his father, Hamlet uses an odd turn of phrase. Remember thee, I thou poor ghost, while memory holds a seat in this distracted globe. 
So if you, if you read this in a modern edition, there's a footnote that says, by globe, Hamlet means his skull. And that certainly makes sense. However, on all the other occasions that Shakespeare uses the word globe, he means the earth. Apart from Prospero's famous speech, when he predicts that the great globe itself shall dissolve, where he's referring both to the earth and to the globe theatre. Could the globe be distracted because it, the earth, is now forced into orbit around the sun? Shakespeare's astronomy is rich and diverse, rooted in knowledge of the night sky, permeated with what was still the majority Aristotelian worldview of the day. If he knew of the ideas of Copernicus, as seems highly likely, he gave them at most a passing reference. Um, from, from Aristotle, he derived much more than just an astronomical worldview. Aristotle's ethics, perhaps imbibed by the French 16th century essayist Michel de Montaigne. In his, in his uh, Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human, the, the American literary critic Harold Bloom sees a strong link between Shakespeare and Montaigne. Of Hamlet, Bloom writes, This most extraordinary of all the Shakespearean act characters is, amidst much else, a despairing philosopher whose particular subject is the vexed relationship between purpose and memory, and his chosen mode for pursuing that relationship is the theatre, in which he will display a professional's knowledge and an active playwright's strong opinions. His Wittenberg is pragmatically London, and his university must certainly be the London stage. We are allowed to see his art in action and in service of his philosophy, which transcends the scepticism of Montaigne, and by doing so invents... Western nihilism. So Bloom is linking Shakespeare with Aristotle via Montaigne and makes Hamlet the originator of the existential terror of Pascal and Sartre. The, the issue of whether Shakespeare was strongly influenced by Montaigne is, is much debated. There's little dispute that Shakespeare's late play, The Tempest, was influenced by Montaigne's essay on cannibals. Gonzalo's description in Act 2, scene 1, of an ideal commonwealth is almost a direct quotation from Montaigne. Montaigne's essays were first translated into English in 1603 by John Florio, who was secretary to Shakespeare's patron, the Earl of Southampton. For Hamlet, written um, 1600 or 1601, to have been influenced by Montaigne, as argued by Bloom and others, requires Shakespeare to have seen an earlier draft of Florio's translation. Um, in 1925, George Coffin Taylor examined Shakespeare's plays and matched passages in them to Montaigne's essays. In his Shakespeare's Debt to Montaigne, Taylor found 51 passages in Hamlet and 23 in Lear that matched. He assembled a list of hundreds of words and phrases, many obscure, that appear in Florio's 1603 translation of Montaigne and that are used by Shakespeare in plays written after that date but which never appear in plays prior to that date. So this, this does look like good evidence that Shakespeare had read Montaigne. There are, there are two direct references to Aristotle in Shakespeare's plays. In The Taming of the Shrew, Lucentio's man Tranio says, Let's be no Stoics, no no Stocks, I pray, or so devote to Aristotle's checks as Ovid be an outcast quite abjured. Balk logic with acquaintance that you have, and practice rhetoric in your common talk. Music and poesy used to quicken you. The mathematics and the metaphysics fall to them as your stomach serves you. So Tranio is advising against excessive study, 
But he is aware that Aristotle has written books on logic, rhetoric, poetics, and metaphysics. And even more interesting is the reference in Troilus and Cressida, where Hector says, Paris and Troilus, you have both said well, and on the cause and question now in hand have glossed but superficially. Not much unlike young men whom Aristotle thought unfit to hear moral philosophy. So this is a direct quote from Aristotle's Ethics, a work that was freely available in, in English translation in Shakespeare's lifetime. Now, perhaps we've been misled by Ben Jonson's famous line in his dedicatory poem to the first folio. And though thou had small Latin and less Greek. To, to assume that Shakespeare was uneducated and unread. When Friar Lawrence eulogises the, the benefits of plants and herbs in Romeo and Juliet, he's, he's expanding, expanding an Aristotelian harmony and balance. At the same time, in the character of Halifernes in Love's Labour's Lost, Shakespeare parodies the pedantry of the schoolmen. So Shakespeare encapsulates the intellectual world of Aristotle, but seems to give strong hints at, uh, at the arrival of the Copernican system. As he was writing, his exact contemporary Galileo was plotting the overthrow of Aristotle's physics. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.